We're in Colossians chapter 3, a great time of worship. Thank you to the team. And um, Colossians, sorry, Colossians chapter 2, 16 to 23, 16 to the end of the chapter. It's common uh, to believe that uh, coming to faith in Jesus solves all of our problems. Sometimes the gospel is even presented that way. Like, come to Jesus, he'll solve all your problems. And yes, uh, believing the gospel solves our biggest problem. Our biggest problem, of course, as human beings is that we have a sin nature, we sin, and that sin is created in a chasm between us and God, a chasm that cannot be spanned any other way but through Jesus Christ. And so uh, coming to faith in Christ, believing the gospel, does indeed solve our biggest problem. Uh, but to be honest with you, on this side of eternity, uh, becoming a Christian may cause more problems for you than it solves. Becoming a Christian may cause more problems for you than it solves. How's that for a church growth strategy? <laughs> Come to Jesus, get more problems. That's the slogan. How do you think that'll go? I mean, there are many obstacles to the faith for a Christian. If you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you probably already understand this. In a wonderful book called Limping with God, Chad Bird, who's a Bible teacher, he's a great follow on Facebook if you're on that platform, his name is up on the screen, but he said this in, in this book that I'm reading currently, he says, as you follow Jesus, do not expect your personal weaknesses and unwelcome character traits to disappear. They will not. Do not expect to get everything right all the time. You will not. And do not expect, as a disciple, that life will be a little easier for you than for unbelievers. Most likely, it will be more difficult. For the world is an unwelcome place for citizens of the kingdom of God. And that unwelcomeness, that unwelcomeness that Chad Bird is talking about here is what we're seeing in the book of Colossians. It's what Paul is dealing with in this letter. It's what Paul is navigating his readers through. The obstacles we faith we face in living out our faith, and, and specifically in this passage, the obstacles that he's talking about are religious obstacles that we put in the way. Religious obstacles that are only overcome, we're going to find out in the passage, they're only overcome by holding fast to Christ alone. And I feel, given the announcement we made right off the top, I feel like if there's any message we need right now, as we consider the obstacles to living the Christian life, it's this message that we would hold fast to Christ alone. We need this. So Colossians 2, 16 to 23, you follow along in your Bible as I read. The Apostle Paul writes this, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let me pray for us. Father, when we hear a passage like that, it's so compelling to us. And I, I would pray, Father, for those who are, who are watching right now, those who are in the room, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be working in each one of our lives to hear this. Father, we, we're in front of a passage that applies to each one of our lives. We need to know how to overcome these obstacles and how to live the life that Jesus offers to us, to hold fast to him. So God, speak in these moments. Speak to every one of us as individuals. We're all bringing different things to the table here today. 
And your Holy Spirit can discern each one of those and speak this word into each one of our lives. And so we're trusting in that right now. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Here's what we're going after. The obstacles to faith are overcome when I hold fast to Christ alone. We're going to look at three obstacles that Paul talks about in this passage and three solutions to overcome those obstacles along the way. Obstacle number one, uh, rules-based religion. Rules-based religion. Uh, This is also known as legalism. Some of you have experience with this. In fact, for the older demographic here, and I think I'm of an age that I now have to include myself in the older demographic. I don't like to admit that. But for the older demographic here, many of you were raised in churches. See if this isn't true of you. Many of you were raised in churches where if you kept all the rules, you were considered a good Christian. Anybody here? If you kept all the rules... It didn't necessarily mean that you were a Christian. It's just that you gave the appearance that you were a good Christian and you were a good church member if you simply kept all the rules. Now, back in in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul spoke of philosophy and empty deceit, and that's what he's dealing with in this section, and how this philosophy and empty deceit had infiltrated, infiltrated the church and was distorting the gospel. And so when he says in verse 16, which is the starting of our passage, he goes, therefore, he's building off of the argument of the previous passage. In in, in fact, the argument of the whole letter at this point, he's building off of that to say, therefore, in light of everything I've just said, here's some very practical things about how we're going to live this out. So this is the practical application of the previous argument. He says this, therefore, verse 16, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, a specific way of doing church, a specific way of doing religion or or being a Christian. The specific gospel distortion here, in fact, he gives the examples, is dietary habits and, and the observance of special days. Now, New Testament Christianity stands apart Uh, From Old Testament uh, belief, it stands apart from other religions in the world, in fact, probably from every other religion in the world, in that we have no special days. We, We don't have any feast days or any holidays. In fact, I would just say this, as Christians, we have 52 days that we are to observe, and that's Uh, The first day of the week, gathering together as believers on what was the day of the resurrection. We do that 52 times a year on Sundays. That would be the only thing. You say, well, what about Christmas and Easter? Well, neither of those are mandated. No holiday is mandated. It's wonderful to celebrate Christmas and the nativity, but that's not biblically mandated. It's wonderful that in a very special way, once a year, we celebrate Easter, Good Friday, Easter. We do those special days, but not biblically mandated. We just do it. It's a nice tradition. It's good. It's not anti anti-biblical. We just do it. And it's awesome. But we don't have any special days. We have no dietary restrictions. Amen? Amen. We have no... Amen? <laughs> amen bring on the bacon? I mean, that's, that's what that means. We have no dietary restrictions beyond a gluttony. So don't eat too much. Don't eat to an excess. In other words, you can eat pig, just don't be a pig. Is what we're, that's it's the common man's way of looking at that. So no special days, no, no special foods, no dietary restrictions. And what he's really doing in all of this is he's addressing a certain group of leaders of people within the church called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were people who had recognized that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, but then they said, everybody who converts to Christianity who believes the gospel has to first convert to Judaism. So you need to act like a Jew before you can accept the Jewish Messiah. You need to keep all the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. You need to keep the dietary laws. You need to keep the special feast days and festivals and holidays that were kept in the Old Testament. And in fact, that wasn't true. The Judaizers were leading people into a false understanding of the gospel. There was no need to uh, follow the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. Yes, the the moral aspects of the law, which are rooted in the character of God, that still all applies to us, but not the ceremonial aspects of the law, because these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
The Old Testament ceremonial law, all those feasts and festivals, all those holidays, all the dietary restrictions, all the things that God get the, got the Jews to do, all of that was actually intended to point toward Messiah so that when Messiah finally came, Jesus Christ, our Savior, when he finally came, all of that was fulfilled and we were no longer bound by that because we had him. So that was the legalism. That was the little, the, the little kind of legalism that was working its way into the church. If you want to be a Christian, you essentially have to be a Jew first. And, and that was their brand of legalism. We had our brand of legalism. And as I was studying this, I was just going, but this isn't a 21st century church problem. The, the, the thing that I'm, I'm talking about in terms of being in a church that had all the rules, that doesn't seem to be the problem that we're facing today. I think it's safe to say that the evangelical church of the 20th century, everybody knows what century we're in right now, right? Which one are we in now? You don't know? Which one are we in now? 21st. So the 20th century, that was the last one. The 20th century, the evangelical church of the 20th century... I was a part of that. That's why I put myself in that older demographic, because that's when I came to Christ, 1979. So I was part of that. The 20th century evangelical church was dominated by legalism. And if you're old enough to have been a part of that, you know I'm true, you know, that, I'm, that that's true. It was dominated by legalism. Again, good Christians, here's the list. Good Christians didn't drink at all, didn't smoke, didn't go to movies, didn't, didn't uh, listen to secular music, didn't play cards, didn't do anything on Sundays. Good Christians from this era in, in such churches wore their hair a certain way, men a certain way, women a certain way. Men were in suits, women were in dresses. We all carried the King James Version Bible because that was God's word. We attended church multiple times in the week. We definitely tithed 10% and we didn't have sex with our boyfriends and girlfriends. How many people went to a church like that? Just raise your hand right now. So you know what I'm talking about. That's not the problem today. But Jesus addressed that church, that kind of legalism head on. Quoting Isaiah 29, 13, in fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were like a little denomination within Judaism back in the first century, and the Pharisees were like, they were the poster child for legalism. It was their stock and trade to create rules, and if you followed all their rules, you were a good Jew. And if you didn't follow their rules, you weren't. So these are, these are the guys they made legalistic religion their thing. And Jesus comes out straight away and he looks at them. And these are like respected leaders in Jewish culture. And he says to them, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites because you're getting people to keep all the rules, but they don't have any heart for God. You're hypocrites. And then he said this, and this is where he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. He says this, this is Mark 7, 6 and 7. This people honors me with their lips. They're doing religion. They're following the rules. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, not the commandments of God, just man-made rules. Now listen, you can, you can write this down. You can take it to the bank. I'm telling you, rules-based religion is toxic to genuine faith. Rules-based religion is toxic to genuine faith. Now, that was the 20th century church. And I've lived through both of this, both of these now, almost 20 years, more than 20 years on both sides of it. So we got the memo. We got the memo from Jesus about how we were doing church in the 20th century. We got the memo, and as the 21st century church, we left legalism behind, but we left it behind in favor of license and liberty. In other words, we're gonna run so far from our parents' version of church, we're gonna have no rules at all. We've swung the pendulum so far the other way that it's now so difficult in the evangelical church today to find any standard of holiness, any pursuit of righteousness. And so in effect, we dumped all the other rules in favor of one new rule. And that new rule is there are no rules. 
And both are a problem. Both of them present to us an obstacle that must be overcome. And either way, whether you're a legalist or you're into liberty and license, the solution applies here. The obstacle, notice next, the obstacle is overcome by believing Christ is all there is. You have to believe that Christ is all there is. Paul gives a little commentary on what this kind of religion is about in verse 17. He says, these are a shadow of things to come. All of this religious observance, these rules that you've made up, they're a shadow of things to come. I get what your intent is behind them, but they're a shadow. Now, he's writing to a first century audience that's part of the Roman Empire, but the lingua franca, the language that was spoken in the Roman Empire at the time was Greek. And that was because of Alexander the Great, who had spread the Greek language and Greek philosophy and education and culture all over the Mediterranean world. The Roman Empire, in a lot of ways, was far more Greek than anything else. And so the New Testament was written in Greek. They understood Greek education, which means they knew about Plato, for example. They knew the philosophies of Plato. They were educated in the philosophies of Plato, who had lived three to 400 years prior to Paul writing this letter. So the idea, Paul writing here of shadow, the idea of shadow and reality, that was something Plato thought through. In fact, in his masterwork, The Republic, there's a section in there called The Allegory of the Cave, where he talks about light and reality and shadows, the shadows against the wall and how the thing that we're seeing in life, the thing that we think is so real really isn't real. It's all just a shadow of what is real. Anybody remember this from philosophy class in Plato? So here's Paul. He's saying this. He, 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 he's appealing to his reader's understanding of shadow. And he says the practice, what he's saying in essence is this, the practice of rituals and religion, they don't get us there. They can point us to something that's real. But the rituals, the religion, all of that, the rules, none of that is real. It's just a shadow. And so Paul goes on to say, the latter part of verse 17, he says, first of all, he says, these are a shadow of things to come, but he says the substance, the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. That word in, in Greek is the word soma. And it's more often not translated body everywhere else in the scriptures. But here it means something a little bit different. It means the substance or the real thing. It's, it's not a shadow of the thing, but it's the actual thing, the real thing. If you carry an NIV translation, they, they, they use the word reality instead of substance here. And, and they say the reality is found in Christ. And, and I would even argue that that translation's a little weak in the sense that it's not that the reality is found in Christ, it's that the reality is Christ. Amen. He is the reality. In fact, the cheesy, because I'm a kid from the 70s, and I came to Christ right at the end of the 70s, I'm just going to throw this in. The cheesy Christian t-shirt version of this is Jesus Christ, he's the real thing. Jesus Christ, he's the real thing. And he really, he's not only the real thing, he's the only thing. And if our sharing of the gospel, the mission that God has is put on us as Christians, if our sharing of the gospel is to be effective, and if our own growth is to happen, we have to know, we have to believe, we have to understand, we have to live out, and we have to proclaim that Christ is all there is. And everything else is a shadow at best. And Plato should be commended. He was reaching for it. He was trying to understand it. He didn't get there, but he was trying to understand it like so many people in our lives. They're trying to, to, to get it, to understand it, to figure it out. In fact, I think it's safe to say that all of the world's philosophies are attempts to grasp what is real and what is shadow? And Christian, the warning comes to us that we need to reject everything in our life that does not get us closer to Jesus. Reject anything that gets in the way of Christ being all there is in our life. Don't worship 
Don't devote yourself to shadows. Insist on the real thing. Here's a second obstacle. Gospel plus something, religion. Gospel plus something, religion. Verse 18, Paul goes on. He says this, let no one disqualify you. By that he means let no one wreck your faith. Don't let anyone undermine your faith. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on, and now he's going to give some examples of different kinds of religion. We're not going to get fixated on the specifics here. He's laying out broad principles about this, insisting on, in their case, asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions. In a general sense, he's coming down hard on religions that promote, ready for this, mysticism, overt attention to angels, transcendent experiences, seeking visions and dreams, the veneration of anyone other than Christ. So for example, the veneration of Mary or of saints or of prophets or of spirits or of ancestors or of spirit animals or the nature itself or, or the stars or the creation. By principle, what this means is anything that we would add or put in place of the gospel. It's, it's Jesus plus fill in the blank. It's, you know, I love Jesus and I'm a Christian, but I check my horoscopes. Stop it. Stop it. You're adding to the gospel. Why are you doing that? The stars have nothing for you. They are a creation of God. They reflect the beauty of his character and his will for this universe. I don't tell you the future. It's not Jesus plus anything. To, to add anything to the gospel is syncretism. It's not the gospel. And anyone who is into any of this, Paul says, is condemned by doing this. I mean, this was so important that the apostles, those, those, those first ones charged with proclaiming the message, very early on in their mission, were in Jerusalem, were, were, were apprehended and brought into the temple and, and questioned by the religious leaders. And in the midst of that question, they're being pressed not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. And they say, and this is Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And they gave their life for that. Jesus plus nothing. But this is so unpopular to say today, isn't it? It's so unpopular to have this understanding of the gospel. People, people today they don't mind if you're religious. Our society does not mind at all if you're religious. There's plenty of room for that. There's even room, I'll say this, there's even room for Jesus as long as it's not just Jesus. And Jordan spoke to us last week about the, the claim of exclusivity of the gospel. That's what the world doesn't like. In fact, R.C. Sproul, he said this, natural man's sin, or he, you can put humanity or people's sin there. That's all he's talking about. Natural man's sin is precisely this. He wants the benefits of God without God himself. That's what humanity wants, the benefits of God without, without God. And so what we do as human beings is we create other gods, we create more palatable gods, gods that we can live with. And we do this, first of all, because humanity has been built with a divine spark or, or a, a void, a God-shaped void. Like we have a sense of the divine. There's an inherent built-in system in every human being to worship something in fact. And we do this by default. 
A very thoughtful um, writer wrote this. His name is David Foster Wallace. Very thoughtful writer and thinker, but a very troubled human being and not a Christian. A man who took his own life, he was so troubled. But this is what he said, and it's so true. Every, I just wish he could have understood it better. Everybody worships, he said. The only choice is what to worship. Everybody worships. Even atheists. I mean, they might deny it to your face, but even atheists worship something. But these who are proponents of this gospel plus something, this Jesus plus something, are puffed up, Paul says, verse 18, they're puffed up without reason. They have, there's no rational reason why they're so confident about their thing because the only thing they're promoting is shadows. There's nothing real about it. But they're puffed up without reason. And it's by a sensuous mind because it's the thing that they want. It's what appeals to them, what pleases them. And so these proponents of this false gospel, they're, they're like the P.T. Barnum. Remember the circus guy? They're like the P.T. Barnum of religion. And they know there's a sucker born every minute and that every human being is going to want to hear this. And so they sell us a more palatable, a more fun, an easier to live out gospel. Earlier in this season, Leo, or in this series, Leo set up the first three messages, and we heard that the Colossians, we heard from him, the Colossians were being uh, influenced by a philosophy, a theology of, of Gnosticism, which claimed uh, special knowledge. We have special knowledge about the gospel. We have special knowledge about Jesus. We're going to provide you with a deeper experience that you could not otherwise get. And in contrast to that, what the gospel is, in fact, is a revealer of the mystery. There's not a mystery uh, that we have to go through to understand it better. The gospel actually reveals the mystery, the mystery of Jesus Christ and his gospel. What we have in the New Testament is the revealing of what was concealed in the Old Testament. We didn't have the name. We didn't know who the Messiah was. But now we do. It's all revealed. The mystery is solved. It's revealed to us. And their essential problem in, in, in propagating this false gospel was this. Verse 19, Paul calls it out. They were not holding fast to the head. They were not connected to the head. They thought they were part of the body and the body is connected to the head and the head is Jesus. And they were thought they were connected to it with all of this mystery and these ideas. Paul says they're not part of the body of Christ at all. They thought they were closer to God because of their mysticism and their secret information. They weren't even connected to the body because this isn't in any form Christianity. You can't say that you're a Christian and add anything else into it and still remain a Christian. And we should beware as believers of anyone who tries to overcomplicate the gospel. We should beware of anyone who wants to add to the prophecies, anyone who's claiming special knowledge from God because all the special knowledge you need from God has already been given to us. The Holy Spirit inspired human writers to give us the Holy Scriptures and everything God wants you to know is right here. God gave it to us centuries ago and provided scholars who have given us reliable English translations, translations to hundreds of other languages around the world, reliable, faithful translations so that we can know the Word of God. It's not a mystery. It's not secret. It's clear. And it's in this book. And as the Reformers said for us, it is sola scriptura, scriptures alone. And Jesus said of these scriptures, it is these that point to me. The scriptures point to Christ and his gospel. So this obstacle of religion plus 
Gospel plus religion is overcome by experiencing, you see this in your notes, is overcome by experiencing the life he gives me. We have life in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 22, we see Jesus putting on a body of flesh. This is the incarnation. Jesus put on a human body to bring about reconciliation. That gap that was between us and God as a result of sin, Jesus overcame that by his own blood, by his own life. And because he became human, we identify with him in that death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 And we become, by faith in Jesus Christ, his body. He is the head. And so this imagery, this metaphor that we have throughout the New Testament becomes clear to us as we see again in verse 19, the latter part. The whole body speaking speaking about us as individuals, but, but then as we're part of the universal body of Christ worldwide, all Christians from all time in history who are bound together by the Holy Spirit, but also the local expression of that, local churches. The whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and notice grows with a growth that is from God. And this is experiencing the life that he has for us, the life that he gives. And the church goes the way of each of its individual members as the individual Christian lives their life seeking to grow in Christ. And as we all do that together, then the church together grows up in Christ. And so believing the gospel for us, we just think about the impact of it, but believing the gospel, I keep using that word over and over again, believing the gospel is not that one-time decision that I made when I first came to faith in Christ. It's not as if I just make that decision and then that's it, I'm done with the gospel, the gospel saved me, now I kind of set it on a shelf or I tell other people about it. But, but it's not affecting my day-to-day life. Absolutely wrong. The gospel is affecting our life every single day. It must be informing our life every single day of our lives. The gospel saves, yes, but it's the same gospel that sanctifies. It's the same gospel that, that informs, that spurs us on toward this ongoing process of becoming like Jesus Christ, more and more like Jesus Christ. And so if you've been walking with Jesus for 40 years or more, like I have been, then you still need the gospel today. I still need the gospel today to help me grow with a growth that is from God. There's no other way to grow Again, I made the announcement off the top about uh, Pastor Dwayne, and this is obviously a very difficult time for the Francois family, for their extended family, and for our church family and the other church families that Dwayne and Hannah have been a part of over the years. And and Dwayne, as you now know, um, was was battling, had a cancer battle for several months, and um, tried the treatments and, and nothing worked. And then the descent was pretty quickly just in the last week and a half. And he passed uh, into eternity uh, just after midnight uh, today. But I saw him uh, several times over the last week and a bit. And he said to me on Thursday, he says, I don't want people thinking that I simply said all the right cliches. That's a quote from him. I don't want people thinking that I simply said all the right cliches. Did you know what he means? Because we do it. We, we all do it. See, when we're experiencing difficulties in life, hardships come our way. We know what we ought to say. We know the Christian cliches that we ought to bring up to make it sound like we're going through it the way we ought to go through it. And sometimes we say those things because we're having significant doubts and we're trying to convince ourselves. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Sometimes you do need to simply rehearse the truth and say it out loud to remind yourself that you believe it. But Dwayne wanted us to know 
He wanted you to know that he was not rehearsing what he ought to believe. That he wasn't spouting Christian cliches. That he wasn't just saying the words to try and convince himself. He was saying, I believe the gospel with all of my heart. And it has changed my life. And that doesn't mean that all of his questions were answered. You don't, you don't die at, 30, at 47. I'm sorry, you don't die at 47 having all of your questions answered. You don't leave behind a wife and three young adult children with all of your questions answered. But he was saying, I believe it with all of my heart and I trust that the Lord knows best. Shadows don't get you there. Only the real thing gets you there. Only Jesus gets you to a place where you can say something like that and believe it. That only happens when a Christian grows with a growth that is from God. So we overcome the obstacle of God plus something religion. We overcome that with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ alone, he's all there is. When you're laying at hospice in a bed and you know you're dying and that's all you have and bit by bit, everything that you once had is taken away. All the shadows are gone. When you're in that hospice bed, all you have is Jesus. And Paul's writing this, and, and it's so critical to him. He's writing this, listen, because this is something that wasn't just threatening individual believers, but it was disrupting the unity of the whole body. He cared about the church in Colossae. That church had been founded by someone who took the gospel to a place it had never been before. And people got saved and started to grow in Christ, and a church was formed, and it mattered. And he didn't want to see that church destroyed by by a false gospel. He didn't want to see the, the unity of the church disrupted. This was important not just for individual believers to understand in their own life, but for the whole church to grasp what was at stake here. And we, we should understand this as believers. If you've been a believer for at least a few years, you should understand this because from 2020 through 2022, in every single church on the entire planet was plunged into the same crisis. And listen, non-gospel issues tore away at the fabric of the unity of the church. We came out the other side like every other local church having endured a disruption by those who listen to pull the phrase out of this text. A disruption, a disruption by those who failed to hold fast to the head. What were they holding fast to? They were holding fast to politics. They were holding fast to conspiracies. They were holding fast to to disputes about matters that are trivial in light of eternity. They held fast to errant ideologies and theologies about the Christian's place and purpose in the world. And so when Paul expresses concern that the unity of the church is at stake from a false gospel, we should be sitting up and listening. We've lived this. We know how serious it is. 
And so it is, again, back to the reformers, it is solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ is all there is, and, and that's where we find life. I said to Jordan this week when I was prepping, I said, this is more like a three-part series, not just one message with three points. There's a lot in this, and I get that. But let's look at obstacle number three. Obstacle number three is self-made religion. And before we get into this, Paul, in this section, he's really recapping some of the things he's already said about the first two obstacles, and he's kind of wrapping it all together to make some concluding thoughts here that are going to be helpful to us. And one of the thoughts he's making is that this kind of religion, both kinds of religions, all other religion aside from the gospel, is man-made. And so he appeals to his readers who are in peril of not overcoming these obstacles. Now, just skip over the first phrase in verse 20. We'll come back to it. And, and look at this question midway through. Why, Paul says, why, as if, as if you were still alive in the world, why do you still submit to regulations? And then he gives some of these religious regulations, some of which we've already talked about. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All the religious rules that can make you feel good. Like you've done something good to appease God for another week. You know, I denied myself this week. I went to worship service. I said the right prayer. I gave the right offering. I served in children's ministry. I did the work that I have to do. I went down the list. I gave myself a few check marks. God, can you see the check marks? I've, I've appeased you for another week. And the reality is Paul's saying like, none of this, none of this earns you a thing. They're shadows. I mean, any religion that gets you to work toward your own salvation is a false religion. And I'm going to tell you, every other religion apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ gets you to work towards your own salvation. Theologian Herman Bavink said this, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the entire work of salvation. It is totally devoid. That's all-encompassing. It is totally devoid of human merit. To the reformers again, it is sola fide. It is uh, sola gratia. It is by faith alone, through grace alone. In other words, and just picking up on Ephesians 2.8, it is the free gift of faith by grace. It is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. It is not of works, lest any of us boast. Lest any of us take any credit for what's happened here. I mean, by the time we get to verse 22, you can almost feel Paul's exasperation kind of building towards this point. Verse 22, in parenthesis, he says, again, commenting back, he says, all of these things are referring back to things that perish as they're used up. These are all this don't touch, don't look at, don't practice. All of this, all of this, listen, is a consumable product. They're not eternal. They're human precepts, he says. They're human teachings. They're not from God. They're man-made. But Paul's careful enough to say, I get how some of these are very persuasive and very attractive to us. Verse 23, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. You look at the other religions of the world and, and even the distortions of the gospel and you go, you know what, well, that kind of makes sense. There's some wisdom behind that. That's kind of a cool way to do religion. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self, uh, appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And then he goes into some other examples of different religions, asceticism, severity of the body. But then notice he says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're of no value. They have no value in producing holiness or sanctification or giving any evidence or assurance of salvation. These religions may look good at first. They may seem sincere and beneficial, but in the end, they're of no value in producing the things that need to be produced in the life of a genuine Christian. Rules can't make you a better Christian. 
Practicing religion will not make you a better Christian because that's a matter of the heart, of soul, and of spirit, and rules and ritual and religion are all external to that. Today, everyone's encouraged to live their own truth. And so the idea of man-made religion, of designer religion, creating a God in your own image and worshiping Him, that's on trend. But it's a trend that's keeping people from finding life in Christ. A trend that's leading people far from God. This obstacle needs to be overcome as well, and it is by dying to this world. The conditional sentence at the start of verse 20 makes a very definitive point, and that's the point of the, this grammatical structure. If with Christ you died, it's, a, it's an if that actually is definitive. It's going to happen. You could, you could change the word there to since. Since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Or you could read it this way, leave the if in there. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world and you have, okay, that's the force of what Paul is writing here. He says, then stop living. Stop living as if you haven't died to these things. You professed Christ as your Savior. You've died to the world. You've died with Christ. Your sin nature was crucified with Him on the cross. Your flesh has been dealt with. Therefore, you are no longer under the elemental spirits of this world. Jordan explained that for us last week. That's the evil influences that are in this world, the evil spirits that are in this world. And I might even add, and the world system with all of its principles and quote-unquote values that the demons that Satan has set up. All of these influences that are authoring these distortions of the gospel. And we don't overcome these obstacles to the faith with clever techniques and with the latest strategy on how to do that, but by dying with Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. I am crucified with Christ. I'm dead to this world. This is, this is the hope that we have as we even think about death. David Powell, we, we think about death so negatively. We, we feel weak and we fee, feel powerless over death, but, but it's life to us when we believe. Death of all kinds is life to us when we believe. So David Powell said this, one of the commentators that we're using in this series. He said, for the Christian, for the Christian death is therefore not a state of impotence, and Satan thinks he won yesterday with Dwayne. He lost. Dwayne's with Jesus. For the Christian, death is therefore not a state of impotence. Rather, it foreshadows the coming victory. I tell you, we have to stop. We have to, we have to, we have to die to this world. We have to stop trying to make Jesus and making our faith fit into the culture. We, we need to stop trying to appease this world. It's not working anyway. The world's unappeasable. We need to be dead to this world. We are dead to this world. And the sooner we realize it, the sooner we're going to be effective at providing what this shattered world actually needs. Because everything this world offers is shadow and we have the real thing. They need the alternative, the only alternative that works. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way they're going to find life. And we have that message. So those are the three obstacles. Those, that's what Paul said we needed to do to overcome them. And I, and I want to I close by just referring back to how we started this message. Because if I were designing a religion myself... If I were designing Christianity myself, here's, here, I, would, I would create no obstacles to the faith. 
That's what I would make. I would make Christianity easier. I, I, I wish the Christian life were, were much easier. I, I, wish, I wish the Christian life didn't require as much time and attention to live out. I, I wish I didn't have to think so deeply about it. I, I wish that the Christian life was something that didn't have so many implications for me so that I wouldn't have to wrestle with those as often. If it were up to me, Christianity would, would, would face a lot less resistance. In fact, it would, it would face no resistance from society, more acceptance of its truth claims, and certainly never any persecution. That's the Christianity that I would design. The Lord, however, has made it so much more difficult for us as Christians. There are indeed obstacles to faith, to your faith, hard things to overcome, truths that need to be learned and understood and lived out and repeated and rehearsed and reviewed and defended. Truths that need to be defended, not just from those outside the church, that's obvious. Sometimes they need to be defended from people who are right in here who are undermining the gospel. But more often than not, the defense that we need to mount is to what's going on in our own hearts and minds. So many of the obstacles, to be quite honest with you, are right here. It's no wonder that there are so many who once professed Christ or at least were once part of the church are now deconstructing their faith. There's nothing easy about it. And I feel like there's so many people who think that it should be. It should be easy. There shouldn't be obstacles. And if you're not willing to overcome the constant obstacles to the faith, then you're not going to be there at the end. That much the passage makes clear. And the only way to overcome these obstacles is by holding fast to the head, by holding fast to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is um, a word, again, that I have to believe applies to everyone here in the room and watching. Father, because it appeals to our very base instincts to worship. And we are so prone to worshiping the wrong thing, to, to being fascinated by shadows and chasing after them rather than seeking the real thing because it's just a little bit harder. And so God, I pray that you would help us, first of all, as believers, who maybe have drifted in this area. And, and Father, that you would pull us back, that your spirit would work on us today to show us the little distortions of the gospel that we've allowed to enter in. God, we repent for that. and Strengthen us, grow us with the growth that comes from God. And God, I would pray for all those who are hearing this message right now and have not yet given their life to Christ and I think about the world and I think about how much they're just chasing after things that are not going to get them to heaven. They're not going to bridge the gap between you and us, you and them. So God, I pray that you would break through that today with this preaching of the gospel, that they would turn to Jesus Christ in faith alone and would find the grace that comes only from you to save them, to forgive them of their, their sins and to give them the hope of eternity. So God, thank you for this time. Do this deep work in each one of us, I pray in Christ's name.